The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. We're going to read and study one of the most well-known stories, passages in, in all of Scripture. People who aren't even a part of the Christian faith, who aren't, a part, who aren't Bible people, who aren't a part of the Judeo-Christian culture. People know this story. It's a well-known story. Uh, it's the story of Daniel's rescue from the lion's den. And like I said last week, no doubt, if you're, if you're a church person, if you grew up in the church, you have had you know, countless teachings, lessons, devotions, heard songs about this narrative. And it's important. There's a reason why, and we're going to get into it today. But before we jump right in, I want to share with you two different stories. Two different stories about two different men, faithful men, godly servants of the Lord who had a a large influence on my life. One is a guy named Dave. Dave was my pastor as a child growing up. He's uh, the author of of the most influential book I've read outside of the Bible. And he's a friend. And about two years ago, I got a call from Dave and he told me some really sad news this incredible mind, this incredible man had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And he was reeling at the news, but trusting in God. And, and so uh, Dave and I began to talk about that. Prayed for God's intervention. And then about a year ago, Dave called me and said, I got great news. I went to my, uh, my neurologist or who, his specialist, and, and they discovered no cognitive decline after a year of Alzheimer's. Praise God. And so then on Friday, I get this excited voicemail from Dave. He's like 70, and it's really cool to get an excited voicemail from a 70-year-old guy. And, he, and so I call him back, and he's like, I just, he goes, I just got back from the doctor's appointment, and they looked at my scans, and Paul, not only is there no cognitive decline, my brain is in better shape today than it was the day I got diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Yeah, to the glory of God, right? Exactly. So we, we celebrated God's faithfulness, and, and Dave unequivocally said, all praise and glory belong to God. I love that story. And I have another friend named John. John uh, was a faithful man. He was a, uh, a missionary who had a successful life and career as an entrepreneur, felt called to missions, sold all of his businesses in his early to mid-50s, and began to pursue life on the mission field, in Uganda specifically. He was my friend, my hunting partner. Him and I went to Africa together on several occasions. And one day I get a frantic phone call from his wife. John wasn't feeling well. They rushed to the hospital, did a chest x-ray, and found that his melanoma had returned, but it had metastasized, and he had tumors all throughout his body cavity. So I rushed to the hospital. My wife and I ended up driving and meeting him at this clinic in a town called Marshfield in Wisconsin. And, and, it's, and it's, it's rough. It's really rough. And so we spent the next uh, few weeks praying for a deliverance. But then on a cold morning hours, a Sunday morning, uh, April 20th, 2008, my friend John died. Uh, 33 days after being diagnosed with cancer. Two stories of two faithful men who served the Lord with their life, two different outcomes. For one, God chose to shut the metaphorical mouth of the lion. For the other, God chose not to shut the metaphorical mouth of the lion. God chose to shut the devouring mouth of Alzheimer's in my friend Dave's life, and he chose not to shut the devouring mouth of cancer in my friend John's life. I share that because as we prepare to read the story of God shutting the mouths of devouring lions in Daniel's den, it would be very easy for me to woodenly and simplistically apply what we learned today. I could say something to the effect of God always delivers the righteous. 
In fact, we have lots of data in the book of Daniel to say that. We go back to chapter 1, he, he delivers the righteous. Chapter 2, he delivers the righteous. Chapter 3, he delivers the righteous. Chapter 4, the king who becomes righteous and gets delivered. Chapter 6, he's delivering the righteous. That's, that's a true statement, and it is true. God does deliver the righteous. And yet, if, if you're like me, and, and based on the two stories I just shared, our lived experience is that sometimes God chooses not to deliver us in the ways we seek or desire for him to deliver us, or the ones we love. And we're left to wonder about the way of God, about the will of God. So how are we then today to read and understand and apply this passage of God rescuing and delivering Daniel in the lion's den? Let's pray. Oh, Father, as we, as we turn our attention to this passage God, a passage I've read and I've sat under teachings. We all have countless times. God, would you give us fresh eyes to, to see this, this narrative, God? And it's not just a story, God. It is a reflection of historical truth about how you rescued Daniel some 35, 3,600 years ago, or 25, 2,600 years ago on the other side of the planet. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the things that we need to understand. We need your help today, God. We need your help to know what it is you're trying to say to us today in this place as we fix our eyes on this ancient text, God. So we invite you today to, to, to make yourself known to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we turn our attention to chapter 6, we've got to kind of remind ourselves of where we were last week. We studied the first 18 verses last week. Daniel, remember, was plotted against by some, some high officials in the newly formed Medo-Persian Empire that had overtaken the Babylonians. And uh, they, they, had, they had conspired with the king, King Darius, to pass this injunction where everybody in the kingdom could only bow down and worship the king for 30 days lest they be killed. And, and Daniel would not bow down and, and worship just the king. Daniel was not going to bend on his commitment to the Most High God. And so the, that was the whole point of the conspirators. They knew the weakness of Daniel was his commitment to, the, to, to his God. And, and so they're, they're, the, the story unfolds as the plot unfolds. Now, Daniel, he was a guy who, who lived in a society that was pluralistic, many paths, many truths, but his unwavering commitment to God was unacceptable to those who plotted against him. And so we saw four movements in last week's text. We saw initially the, the promotion of the distinguished. Daniel was seen as distinguished among his peers, kind of a first among everyone. And, and then we saw the, the conspiring of these corrupt men who were filled with jealousy that this exile was taking positions of power from them. And, and then we saw the discipline of prayer in chapter 6, verse 10, as Daniel, in the face of this injunction, in the face of death, he continued with this discipline he'd always done. And then the last eight verses of our text last week, verses 11 through 18, we just saw, simply saw the, the condemnation of Daniel. We said it was the condemnation of the blameless. Because in our passage today, Daniel is described as blameless as he's thrown into the lion's den. As we looked at Daniel's life last week, we just looked at the continual and consistent pursuit of God that he had modeled throughout the course of his life, 70 plus years living as an exile in a foreign land. Through all sorts of circumstances, a faithful and consistent and continual pursuit of God. And our argument last week was that the continual and consistent pursuit of God will carry you and me through all circumstances like it carried Daniel. I listened to Alistair Begg preach through this text earlier this week, and, and uh, I love what he said. He said, it wasn't that the time of crisis created Daniel's disciplined prayer life, but rather the time of crisis revealed his disciplined prayer life. 
Last week we made a a note of Daniel's faithful resolve, even as he knew that this document that would essentially be his death warrant, even as he knew it was signed, we read in verse 10, he went to his house where he had windows in the upper chamber towards Jerusalem, and he got down on his knees as he did three times a day, and he prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had always done. Now, you know, we can speculate. Daniel could have made excuses, right? He'd been faithful his whole life. He could say, God, I've never missed a day of prayer in 65 years, 70 years of serving you. I, I, just, I, just, I just don't want to, I don't want to be thrown in the lion's den, God. So would you excuse me if I, if I pray in silence? Would you excuse me if I choose another location to pray? Would you excuse me, Lord, if I, if I sort of um, ignore this conviction you've placed in me for the sake of my own well-being? But he didn't do that. It was the continual inconsistency of Daniel's prayer life It was the regularity of his faithfulness, which was the very means by which he got caught up in this trap. I think it's interesting is is he's arrested and the king realizes he's been duped by these own own advisors of his, these overseers of his, and he's grieved because he he thought deeply of Daniel. And and Daniel's being thrown into the lion's den. The very last words that he heard, we read in verse 16 of chapter 6, it's the king grieved that his, his, uh, his servant, his advisor, his right-hand man is going to suffer this gruesome end. And he says to Daniel, as a prayer and as a, as, a, as a plea, he says, may your God, Daniel, whom you serve so faithfully, may he rescue you. Those are the last words Daniel heard as he's falling into this pit of lions. Stone is brought in and placed over the mouth of the den. King seals it. King goes home that night. He's out of his mind. He fasts. He refuses to be entertained is unable to sleep. And that's where our text picks up. Verse 19. Let's read. Let's read through the whole passage all the way through the end of the chapter. Beginning in verse 19. Then at break of day, the king arose and went in haste to the den of lions. As he came near to the den where Daniel was, he cried out in a tone of anguish. The king declared to Daniel, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? And then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel and shut the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him and also before you. O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. Let's actually pause there. Let's pause there. We noted last week, and I want to draw our attention again to how it, it is impossible to read the story of Daniel and his lion's den without seeing the, 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 the incredible parallels with the gospel account, the stories of Jesus. Uh, the, the, the gospel account, the Easter account of Jesus. We pointed out last week the, the parallels were that an innocent man in both cases was conspired against. Daniel was innocent, Jesus was innocent. The innocent man was found praying as he's taken into custody. Daniel in the upper chamber, Jesus in Gethsemane. We saw that in Daniel's case, a weak leader allows the murderous conspiracy to be carried out. In Darius, and in Christ's sake, a weak leader, Pontius Pilate, allows the murderous plot to be carried out. We learned that in both the story of Daniel and the story of Jesus, a blameless man is sealed in a death chamber behind a stone. Daniel in the den and Jesus in the tomb. In both stories, the condemned man acted as a representative of the whole. Daniel was a federal head for the the exiled Jews, and Jesus is the head of all the redeemed. 
And today, as our passage goes even further, we see more parallels with the gospel account. We see that a desperate man in that first dawn hours, there's a desperate man running to the tomb uh, with, with a grieved heart. It's Darius running to the this place where he believed Daniel was dead. And in the gospel accounts, we see Peter and John running to the tomb of Christ to discover them living. We hear the presence of an angel in the den of lions, and there were angels at the resurrection of Christ outside the tomb. We see life where there was the expectation of death. Daniel was supernaturally spared what was essentially a death sentence. Jesus was supernaturally raised to life when he was resurrected. So this story, the story of Daniel and the lions, then it points us to the gospel message. It is a shadow. It is a, it is a giant arrow that points us to the ultimate deliverance that comes through Jesus Christ. And that we're going to unpack that as, as we work through the text this morning. But there's also practical implications, isn't there? It's hard to get away from the practical implications of Daniel chapter 6. I mean, I think of the, the, consen- the continuous and consistent rhythm of prayer that we pressed in on last week. I, I think of the resolve of... Of, of Daniel in the face of great threat to do what he'd always done. He could have made an excuse and not prayed, but he, in the face of death, he continued to pray with this 30-day injunction under the threat of death. And it makes me wonder, very practically and applicationally in my life and in your life, what rhythms or activities are in my life? What rhythms or activities are in your life that if banned for the next 30 days under threat of death might lead to your condemnation and mine? What are those consistent rhythms in your life, those things you do day in, day out, week in, week out, that if they were suddenly banned under the threat of death, you might be in trouble? School, work, media, relationships, travel, leisure, hobby, Bible, prayer. One preacher asked this dreadful question. He said, would it make any substantial difference in our lives if prayer were to be banned for the next 30 days under punishment of death? I find myself wondering if the experience of prayer for Daniel was, um, if it was always rich, if it was always powerful. Do you think when Daniel prayed, it was different than when you and I pray? Because I can tell you sometimes when I pray, and, and maybe you've experienced this too, there's times when I pray when it's incredible. It's just incredible. Like I feel the spirit is, is animating. I feel like the listening ear of God is pulling prayers out of me. And I feel like God is giving words to the, the, the angst of my spirit or the, or the pleas of my heart. And I feel like there are times when, when prayer just feels like a supernatural conversation with God as if he's right beside me. And I love those experiences. Perhaps you've had those too. But you know what the other part is, right? How often have you got down on your knees and you began to speak and it feels like you're speaking into an empty room? It feels like there are words that are being lifted up into nothingness and you're wondering, does God even hear these? Do my prayers even matter? I wonder about the experience of Daniel. Do you suppose he had both experiences on the continuum of prayer? I think he probably did. It couldn't have always been profound. Could it have been? Here's what someone says. They say, there were doubtless times in his prayer, there were doubtless times when his prayer duty refreshed him and inspired him. And others when the custom brought no immediate satisfaction and he ended without feelings of blessedness. However, it's clear that Daniel established this as a fixed point in his life, irrespective of his feelings. And through it, he maintained the reality and strength of his communion with God. When it comes to the discipline of prayer, I think it's tempting for, for me, at least. I'm not sure about you, but it's tempting for me sometimes to, to, to want to see the results 
very quickly. I want to see immediate gratification to my, to my prayer, and I find myself sometimes, and it comes to those long prayers, those, those, those long-suffering prayers over the course of, of months, years, and even decades, praying the same thing and wondering if your prayer is falling on deaf ears, wondering if you're praying the wrong thing, wrestling with what's going on with my prayers. I, I wonder if, if there's times in your life, like there's times in my life where I sometimes wonder, like, what am I getting out of this? Like, what's, like, Lord... And I, and I wonder, do I, do I pray? Is my heart motive when I pray to get something out of it? Or is my heart to, to, to glorify God? Do, do, I, do I get on my knees to get something from God? Or do I get on my knees to make much of God? That's a good question for me to ask. That's a good question for us to ask when it comes to our prayers. And there's times, and I'm sure you've experienced it, that, that praying and having a conversation with the Lord is... Uh, you, you have an unmistakable sense of God's presence. And there's times when you might not. And I think Daniel had to have had that human experience, didn't he? After 70 years of falling on his knees three times a day, facing Jerusalem and calling out to God. It was his commitment to prayer, his commitment to daily turning his face to God, that was the one thing in his life that was predictable, according to his conspirators. And it's just a sad story. He was probably 80 early 80s when this was unfolding. Think of an 80-year-old, frail, old, uh, thinning hair, arthritis in the body, unable to move quickly. Think of an 80-year-old being thrown 20 feet, 30 feet down into a pit with a bunch of ravenous lions, hungry and ready ready to, to have a lunch. It's horrific. It's tragic. It's sad. In seeking to have Daniel devoured and destroyed, I read one author this week, he said they were seeking to do what Satan himself seeks to do. Just as the narrative points to the delivering work of Jesus, it also points to the destroying work of the devil. It's the objective of Satan to destroy every trace of the kingdom of God. When we see these evil men plotting to have Daniel thrown into the pit, they are doing the bidding of the accuser himself. And yet our passage reveals the deliverance of Daniel from death. That's the title of my sermon, by the way, Delivered from Death. Here's the first thing I want you to write down if you're a note taker. We're going to see just three movements in the narrative. First thing is simply this. We see the righteous delivered. In the first handful of verses, we see the righteous delivered. We see the righteous is delivered. The king asks, has your God been able to deliver you? Can you see this king running in haste in the early morning hours, having no sleep, having not eaten, not been entertained, wringing his hands all night? He runs in haste at first light. And it says that as he's still approaching, you know, it says that as he came near to the den, he's already speaking before he even falls down on his hands and knees and look down inside the lion's den. He calls out, Daniel, servant of the living God. Was your God, whom you serve so faithfully, was he able to rescue you from the lions? It's this anguish in his voice that makes him sound not like a king, but like someone who's being tormented. And Daniel's response is incredible. Daniel says, long live the king. He lived through the night. My, my God sent an angel to shut the lions' mouths so they wouldn't hurt me. I've been found innocent before God. I've been found innocent before you, your majesty. It's just an incredible testimony that Daniel's able to give in those morning hours after spending a night with those lions. He was innocent before God and before the king. He was righteous. And Daniel didn't, him by himself, he, he didn't self-will the lion's mouths to be shut. He wasn't a sorcerer or an, or an animal whisperer. He was rescued. 
He was delivered. He was dependent on God. And we see that quite literally the righteous is delivered. He was blameless. He was righteous and he's delivered. This is the first movement of our text. And as we look at the larger biblical picture here, as many authors have pointed out over the years, the, the lions here can really be metaphorical uh, for, for the reality of the, just the chaos of our world. We live in a fallen, broken, sinful world where it just feels as if random things are always happening, destruction and horrible things. And, and many have pointed out that the lions here are, are metaphorical for that reality. The unruly, unpredictable nature of the lions, the desire the lions have to do great harm. Evil is described as a roaring lion in 1 Peter. And here in our passage, the lions are created to consume and they're created to devour. They're carnivores. Lions are experts at killing. And yet in the early morning hours, they're found to have their mouths shut. In harmony with Daniel. Lion and man. Predator and prey in harmony. In a moment of intense crisis, one author says, in order to preserve his kingdom, we see a glimpse of God's fulfilled kingdom. You know, through the prophet Isaiah, chapter 11, as we kind of get a glimpse of the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of God in his son, we, we, we have this, this picture in, in Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 9, of the lion and the lamb laying down together. Like this picture of peace that the messianic kingdom will, will bring and will usher in. And it reminds us of what John says in Revelation 21 as he, as he listens to the, the announcement of, of the new heavens and the new earth that one day death will be no more. And as we look and we see Daniel preserved here some 26, 2,500 years ago in this pit somewhere in modern day Iraq, as we see him in, the, in this pit in the early morning hours in harmony with the lion, we get a foretaste of what the new heavens and the new earth will be like. This moment in the bottom of this pit is a it's an indication of what God is going to do in his redeeming, redemptive work. I even think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Like, like they left the, the fiery furnace in chapter 3, and it says their hair wasn't singed, their clothes weren't singed, and they didn't even smell like smoke. We see God's supernatural intervention and protection of Daniel, and we see God's supernatural intervention and protection of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's as if for a few moments we get a glimpse, we get a foretaste of, of what awaits all of us that are redeemed in Christ, a foretaste of this eternal kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth, and God supernaturally in these little moments brings it to bear so we can get a glimpse of what it's going to be like. And we begin to see that the point of this passage is, has to be bigger than just simply that the momentary deliverance of Daniel in the bottom of that den. God was doing that, and God did deliver Daniel in that moment, but there is a massive arrow that is pointing to Jesus and pointing to the larger delivering, redemptive work that God does in and through his son Jesus. Amen? This is important to me. And I know I've shared this story with some of you, but I'm going to share it again. It's not an easy story to share. But many years ago in my previous church, we, we, we preached through Daniel. And, uh, and I didn't preach this particular morning. I was, I was a, I was, but I was in church, and church got over. And uh, about 20 minutes after church, I noticed this young woman who was new to our church sitting by herself. And she remained in the sanctuary, and I thought maybe she was having a moment of prayer. A, a contemplative moment with the Lord, so I didn't want to bug her. But I kept watching as time passed by, and finally enough time had elapsed. I don't remember how much time, but enough time where she was kind of just alone in there. And so I kind of gently walked in there and sat next to her and, and uh, I asked her what was going on. Like, what's on your, what's on your heart? What's on your mind? What's, what's the Lord doing in you today? And, uh, and she told me, she's like, Pastor Paul, 
This last weekend, I was drugged and sexually assaulted. And then she looks at me and she says, I guess that's one lion's mouth God chose not to shut. That was so hard. Because a simplistic, wooden application of this text um, doesn't work in situations like that, right? And so I think there's a much larger truth that we have a sovereign God who is good and he's working out all things for his glory and for our good and he loves us and he'll cause all things ultimately to be used for his good to have that truth, that much larger truth that this text points us to. We, we need to anchor ourselves to that truth because we can all share stories, right? We all have stories like that. And, and, and it was that conversation that Yeah, I, didn't, I don't want to be pastorally negligent to this woman whose life had been utterly up, turned upside down. And we walked together through, through that journey together. But. So, first thing we see, we see that righteous are delivered. Secondly, secondly we, we get to chapter, or verse 24, and this is just this horrible scene, right? We see, beginning in verse, we're just going to read one verse here, that the, the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, they were brought and cast into the den of lions. They, their children, and their wives, and before they reached the bottom of the den, the lions overpowered them and broke all their bones in pieces. Yeah, that's brutal. Yeah, that's brutal. Second thing I want you to write down is uh, we see the accusers judged. We see the accusers judged. In the deliverance there was destruction. In a sinful and fallen world that we all live in every day, there is a dark side. There's a, there's a dark reality that exists. Uh, one, one author says that there is a dark and somber side to the salvation of people. Those who seek to destroy the kingdom of God, those who reject the rule and reign of King Jesus, they'll face destruction. Notice in our passage, judgment falls on those who attempted to destroy God's kingdom. And it doesn't just fall on these, these guys who conspired. It falls on their wives and their children. That is hard. That is, like, that is a difficult reality to read about. One, uh, one theologian, in sort of helping us understand why the wives and the children, along with the men, had to be, had to be executed, he writes this. He says, although cruel, executing wives and children with the guilty man was the practice according to Persian custom, a policy that must have been carried out in part to prohibit retaliation from family members in the future. And this term children, it, it, it's, it has a masculine, it, it literally means boys, but, but it can refer to both, boys and girls. It was very likely a a group of men who had conspired. Maybe there was these three, maybe it was the other two conspirators and, and it was a handful of the satraps that conspired with them, their wives and their children. It was a brutal scene. And the fact that the bones of these being devoured, uh, the, the, the bones of those being devoured were broken before they even hit the ground, before they even reached the bottom of the pit they were being shredded by these lions. It disproves a false narrative that somehow Daniel survived because these were fat, toothless, old kittens. They weren't. They were hungry, ravenous carnivores. They were killers. And that, that makes the miracle of Daniel's deliverance all the more miraculous as we look at horror at the judgment that befell these accusers. And as we do, we're reminded 
that, that the punishment that falls on them, it's, it's representative, again, to a larger truth. That those who spend their entire lives opposing the kingdom of God will face judgment. And we're going to see as we get into the second half of Daniel, there's lots of language about how God is going to crush these beasts, these kingdoms that oppose his kingdom. We're going to read more about that in the second half of this book. And if you get into the book of Revelation, there's this language in Revelation that we're, people who, will, who are going to face the wrath of God, they, they, they know that the wrath of God is so terrifying that they call on the mountains to fall on them and, and crush them rather than face God's judgment. So it's impossible to see the deliverance here without seeing the destruction. And we see that concept in different places in the Bible. Think about the flood in Genesis you know, 6, 7, and 8. I mean, as, as, as Noah and his family members are rescued, as they're delivered, it also means simultaneously the destruction of everybody else. Think about the, the Israelites uh, moving across the Red Sea as God parts the Red Sea. It's the, the very thing that brought deliverance to the people of God, brought destruction to the armies of Egypt. Both are opposing the way and the, the kingdom of God. And, and there's language all throughout the New Testament about the return of Christ. When Jesus returns, and Jeremy was alluding to that again this morning for our Advent reading, for the Christian, it's our, it's our great hope. I, I tell you people all the time, like, the, the crazier our world gets, I'm, I'm like, Lord Jesus, return. I am ready for you to come back. I am ready for you to usher in your kingdom. I'm ready. And that's hope for the Christian. It's deliverance. But when Jesus returns, it's destruction for those who oppose him. So there's this picture of deliverance and destruction that go hand in hand. And it goes in our text as well. And we can continue to see that the point of this passage reaches far beyond God's judgment of these accusers in this moment. There are eternal truths playing out in this text that point far beyond the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, but to the eternal kingdom of God. And so we see two movements in the text, right? We see the righteous are delivered. We see the accusers judged. The story's coming to an end. The righteous are delivered. The accusers are judged. Now let's read the very end of the, of the, of the chapter, beginning in verse 25. <clears throat> the response of the king, right? Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth. And he said, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For this God, he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. And his dominion shall be to, and his, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during his reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. It's interesting if you look at the bookends of the first six chapters, we end chapter one with the mention that Daniel reigned till Cyrus, and here we have the mention of Cyrus yet again, sort of bookending the, the ministry or the work of Daniel in both Babylon and the Medo-Persian Empire. Here's a third thing I'd encourage you to write down. We see the living God praised. As we, as we look at the story of Daniel being delivered from death, we see the living God praised. Notice how, notice how in verse 20, when the king runs up to the, the, the lion's den that morning, do you remember what he calls the, the God of Daniel? He says, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you've continually been able to, have you, whom you've served continually, has he been able to deliver you from the lions? And then as he begins his poetry here, speaking about this God, elevating this God, wanting the whole world to know about this delivering God, he says, for he is the living God. 
A dead God could not stop the mouths of lions. It is a living and active God who intervened and saved Daniel to the glory of God. And so we see this movement through the text. The the righteous are delivered, the accusers judged, and the living God is praised. This God lives, the king says. He's a living God, not not a wooden effigy. He is a living and active God. And he, he will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. His sovereignty will never end. And not only is this, is this king big and powerful and, and eternally reigning, he also rescues and saves his people. He's not just concerned with the macro. He's concerned with the micro. There's a, there's a personal concern of this God for his people. He rescues and saves his people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders before his people. The God who rescued Daniel from the lions... The implication for you and me today is he still rescues his people. This is good news. And the king wants everybody to know it. He wants to declare this good news to everybody who is within his reach. The king Darius wrote to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on earth. He wants everybody to know of this God. That language sounds familiar, doesn't it? We heard that from King Nebuchadnezzar. We hear it in Jesus, when he commissions his disciples in the New Testament to take the gospel message to the ends of the earth, but I'm mindful on Christmas of the announcement of the angels the night that Jesus was born in Luke chapter 2. Do you remember what the angels say when they appear to those shepherds? In the same region where the shepherds were out in the fields keeping watch over their flock by night, Luke 2 verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to these shepherds, fear not. You know what he says. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. All the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth. This king is proclaiming good news, but Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of that good news. For unto you is born on this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. What an amazing truth. So we see how this text... powerful text about how God intervenes in this moment in history and we see the breaking in of his of his kingdom and his power for a few moments as he stops the mouth of these lions and it points us to a much larger truth that is fulfilled and revealed to us through Christ and I don't think on a practical level we can just blow past the fact that this is this powerful king over the Medo-Persian empire it's Darius and and it's incredible to think of, of a world leader writing to anybody who could hear him saying, I I want to extol the virtues and the character of this saving, delivering God whose dominion never ends. Now, I'm a king of the most powerful kingdom on earth at this moment, but there is a king who is so much more powerful than me. He is an eternal king. His kingdom is so much bigger than my kingdom. It's an eternal kingdom. And he is the one whose dominion endures forever. He is the one who rescues his people. He is the one who deserves your praise and honor and glory. That's incredible. I mean, we read it because we're used to reading these stories and it kind of goes over our head, but, but contemporize this for a second. Can you imagine if this was happening in our, can you imagine if suddenly the Hamas leader got on CNN tomorrow And said, I had an encounter with the living God. And he renounces the evil of Islam. And he upholds and extols the virtues of the living God. And points people to Jesus. Can you imagine? And if we think that God could do nothing less, then we're not understanding who our God is. He can do that. And we need to pray to that end. Rather than hate those who've been elected in political positions, we're called by Scripture to love those who persecuted us, to pray for them. We're called to pray for the leaders God has put in our midst, as godless as they can be. Because our God can and does. 
I have a friend who's a police officer in my former community, and, and he's a really cool guy, very stoic, very smart guy. Kyle, I know you listen each week, so hey, buddy. And he's always sending me uh, stories, news stories of, of powerful people that are coming to faith in Christ. It's really, it's happening all over the place right now. I don't know if you guys are catching these stories. There's so much bad news. A lot of this gets buried on page six, but there are athletes and musicians and actors and people of influence all over the planet that are coming to faith in Christ and extolling the virtues of the God of the Bible. It's happening. God does that. He, he softens the hardest of hearts. He opens the blindest of eyes. And we need to pray to that end and believe that he does that because he can. I mean, if he saved you and me, he can save anybody. If you don't think your God can do that, he's too small in your mind. So we continue to see that this passage, it reaches far beyond God's judgment of these accusers in this moment. It it reaches far beyond than this one king extolling the virtues of God. He is pointing us to the eternal king and his eternal kingdom that, that awaits all who are redeemed in Christ. And this is how the story of history ends, church. This is how the story of human history ends. The righteous are delivered in Christ. The accusers are judged in the presence of Christ. And the living God is praised for all of eternity as the people of God gather around the throne of God and worship him forever and ever and ever. I love how the apostle John in the Revelation chapter 7, he gives us this picture of, of, of what the throne of Christ, this, the, the eternal throne of the eternal king, what it, what it will look like. Revelation 7 verse 9, he says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, worshiping the living God. So this is this arrow that points us to the great hope that we have in Christ. I love in Revelation 21 this picture that we have of of what it's going to be like in the new heavens and the new earth. John is looking, he's trying to give us utterance of what God has revealed to him. And he says, I saw no temple in the city for its temple and it's, for the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine in it for the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light, Will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into the glory, into it, the glory and honor of the nations. I love this picture at the end of how all human history ends. The continual worship of the one king who deserves continual worship. And so, be encouraged be encouraged as we study this passage. There's so, much, there's so much meat on the bone here. You just can't examine all of that. But, but I want to pause and I, I want to have a pastoral moment with you like we do often on a Sunday morning. I, I know that there are some of you today who are feeling the teeth of whatever that metaphorical line is in your life sinking into you. I know that. And I know that you have loved ones who are facing metaphorical lions today. I know that. And our God still delivers us from those metaphorical lions in the here and the now. So we need to appeal to him and we need to ask for deliverance. The Bible commands us to do so. One of the greatest ministries that, we, that I love about heritage is, is just a prayer ministry. Jeremy talks about, we talk about it every Sunday. We pray for deliverance in your life. We visit and anoint people in oil and lay hands and pray. And we ask God to do his delivering work. We do so under the submission of understanding he has a sovereign will that he is unfolding before us. And so for those of you here today, and you're, you're laboring in your own, your own pit, your own lion's den, whether it's depression 
or betrayal or Alzheimer's or cancer or oppression or injustice or heartbreak, or disappointment, failure, fear, whatever, whatever that may be. I think what this text allows for us to do today is to lift our eyes and, and say, God, do what you will. I'm going to ask for you to deliver me from, from this right now, God, because it's, it's, it's brutal, it's heartbreaking, it's, it's overwhelming. I'm asking you, God, to break in and intervene, and, and it's appropriate to do that. But our text also allows us today to lift up our eyes and say, oh, God, you're doing something so much bigger than this. This is, this is one page in the grand story of redemption that you are telling throughout human history. And I might not understand how this page fits into the grand story of redemption, but if I lift my eyes and I look to this reality, that the righteous are delivered, the accusers are judged, and the living God will be praised, it allows me to lift up my eyes and I can look through my current pain, not, not deny it, not be fake about it, but I can look through my current pain, through my current struggle, through this lion, this metaphorical lion, and I can look to the lion of Judah. I can look to the conquering king. I can look to the consummation of all things. Death is going to be dead forever. I can look to that promise and that hope, and it informs my suffering today in a fresh way. And we see that God is, in fact, a delivering God because he, he has delivered us from the ultimate lion, sin and death. And that's the hope of the gospel spoken over our lives in this moment. Daniel was delivered to the glory of God. So were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I am also mindful, as we read through Hebrews last year and taught through Hebrews, that we, the author of Hebrews even speaks to us about how our God stops the mouth of lions do you remember Hebrews chapter 11, how God, how God points us to this larger future truth? I'm going to read you Hebrews 11, verses 32 through 40. This is so important because this is, this is the author of Hebrews talking about this king and his kingdom. And he's talking about the way in which God has chosen to, to deliver and move in the lives of his people throughout, throughout biblical history. And here's what the author writes. He says, and what more shall I say? This is in the chapter that deals with the hall of faith. He says, the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. So what, what happened with these guys? Well, through faith, they conquered kingdoms and forced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Hallelujah, victory, victory, victory. In the middle of verse 30, 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in the dens of caves and in the dens and caves of the earth. Okay, so God's people can experience here and now, victory, but they can also experience here and now, difficulty. Deliverance or difficulty. Both can happen to the faithful. And then, then the author of Hebrews lifts our eyes up and he says, And these, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us. For apart from us, they should not be made perfect. And then we get into Hebrews chapter 12, this incredible chapter that speaks about 
about what, 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 what then are we to do as, as the church? He says, well, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with the endurance, the race that God has set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And this great just this great instruction it, 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 for those that find themselves in the midst of the lion's den. Look to Jesus. Look to this greater promise that God has for us. In this life, we are going to experience deliverance and suffering as God orchestrates history. The overarching story is one of deliverance. It's one of reconciliation. It's one of restoration. And the message of Daniel is there is a greater kingdom and there is a greater king. I want to look with me again at uh, the poetry of the book. Let me finish with this. Daniel, one of the cool things about Daniel is there's, there's poetry in a handful of spots. You, always can, you, always, you can always tell the poetry where, there's, where, the, where the translation committee have indented and they've made it clear where the poetry is. And It's interesting. And the uses of poetry in the first six chapters of Daniel, one is in chapter 2. It's Daniel extolling the God who, 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 the God of mercy who saved him and his friends from being killed by the king. In chapter 4, it's King Nebuchadnezzar praising Daniel's God who has now become his God. And here in chapter 6, it's King Darius. Let me just read these to you. I just want to read you the poetry sections, and then we're going to close in prayer. I want you to hear th- this song in the book of Daniel, if you will. This is, these are songs to be sung. This is, the, this is the, the main idea of this book, is about this king and this kingdom that is greater than the earthly kings and the earthly kingdoms. Listen to what the authors of Daniel, uh, what, these, what these worshipers in the pages of Daniel have to say about, about the God of Israel, about our God. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 20. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells in him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me the wisdom and might and have now made known to me what you asked, what we asked of you. Then we go to chapter four as Nebuchadnezzar is kind of giving testimony of what the God of Daniel has done in his life and how how this God of Daniel has now become his own God. He says, beginning in verse 2, it has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. Then here's his song. How great are his signs. How mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Skip to verse 26, or verse 34 rather. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing as he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among all the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? And then our passage today. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to no end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lion. Just a a quick overview of those, those few songs tell us that to God belong wisdom and might. 
He is absolutely sovereign and he does what he wills. There is no end to his dominion. There's no end to his kingdom. There's no end to his power. All of creation is dwarfed by his awesomeness and his goodness and his love and his mercy and his grace and his righteousness. And in all his bigness, he delivers the afflicted. In all of the macro bigness of God, there's the micro love of God pointed to you and me. He delivers the afflicted. He gives wisdom to those desiring wisdom. He reveals hidden things. He performs mighty signs and wonders, and he saves. And he is deserving of thanks and praise. He is deserving of all our worship. This is how the story ends. The righteous are delivered. The accusers are judged. And the living God is praised. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for this privilege you give us of studying this book, but not just to understand a story or to read an ancient work of literature. These are your words, your living words inspired by you for us. And thank you so much, Father, for the way you allow us to see who you are through the pages of, of these texts. You are the living God. You, you are a God who endures forever. Your kingdom will never be destroyed. Your dominion has no end. You are a God who delivers and rescues. You work signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. You are the God who saves us from our own sins in and through your Son. God, you are for us. God, you are for us. And so, God, I pray for whomever, whoever may be staring down the, 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 the gnarling teeth of some metaphorical lion in their life right now, God. I pray that you would allow our eyes to be lifted, God, to, to, to call out to you in honesty and sincerity and transparency about our, our affliction in the moment. And at the same time, God, as we ask for you to intervene in, in these momentary light afflictions that you've allowed into our lives, God, may it serve as a, as a means for our eyes to be lifted to you. And that we would see the larger truth of your redeeming work, your delivering work, God, and that even through the suffering in our life, you would be praised. I'm mindful this morning that you spared Daniel, but Daniel still died. And God, it was, the point of Daniel's life was not that he survived the, the sword of the king or the teeth of the lion. The point of Daniel's life was that he pointed to you, the king of kings whose kingdom endures for all eternity. So God, I pray for us today, God, each one of us, whatever we may be facing in these moments, God, would you give us eyes to see the, the larger truth that you are a redeeming God and that there's gonna be a day that death will be no more. You make all things right, all things new. You wipe every tear from our eyes and we will worship you for all of eternity. God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.